Ketchup and tuna fish. Ah, Budweiser. I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting that. I, uh, uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> it's Hank. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? That means it must be time for the Death by DVD Happy Holidays Special. You are listening to Death by DVD. And I'm Hank, your host, and this is the Death by DVD Christmas special. Or holiday special. I don't know if you're supposed to say Christmas anymore. There is a purported war on Christmas, which, um, one, I think is kind of interesting because we only go to war on Christmas. I don't understand that. One day a year, it doesn't seem tactical at all. It doesn't seem like a lot's going to get done one, one day a year. And two, we go to war with Christmas, which... You know, uh, pardon me, but that means we're going to war against what presumably is an immortal fat man who has control of flying animals and an army, not even a militia, but an army of short people willing to do his bidding any time of the year. I don't know if that's the correct, politically correct, the PC term. Short, is it little people? Or short people? The war on Christmas. That, um, that old war on Christmas. But coincidentally, this Death by DVD Christmas special isn't really the uh, let's celebrate Christmas, birth of Jesus, because that's what this is all about, right? It's Jesus's, Jesus's, it's G- Jesus's, is, is that guy that got nailed to the cross. It's his birthday. And generally, I guess for birthdays, you know, you party, you, you have some fun. So what we're going to try and do is party and have some fun. Not for Jesus, though, for the subject matter, which we'll later get into. First off, we've got a new segment I'm really excited to play with you guys. Keith David, or David Keith. Nineteen nineties Men at Work starring Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen as idiot brothers with little to no acting required. Who plays their boss's brother-in-law? A semi-crazed, no-nonsense Vietnam war vet. Is it David Keith or Keith David? It's Keith David, I think. I've not seen that movie in a little while. It's Keith David, right? Stuart Copeland did the soundtrack. Well, anyway, it's probably Keith David, I think. Join us next week for another round of David Keith or Keith David. And now back to Hank. That probably wasn't the worst intro of the year. I'm sure there's got to be something that was more tasteless? I don't know. So as the war on Christmas rages outside and the bombs continue dropping, we're hunkered down safe in Death by DVD Studios, four miles beneath the earth in an abandoned nuclear missile silo in Anytown, USA. We will withstand the war. We'll make it to the end. We'll be fine. It is going to be a blue Christmas, though. As you can tell, I'm all alone. Spending Christmas all alone. But I've got you, I've got you the audience, you guys out there that are listening, hopefully having a merry December 25th if you don't celebrate Christmas. Um, partying hard, I don't know. The whole concept of 
the holidays. I think should be embracing everyone and embracing whatever the hell anyone wants to celebrate and whichever deity they choose by celebrating it. And the whole idea that Christmas, the identity of it, is being taken away from people, I think is just laughable and almost just drawing straws uh, to be pissed off about something. People aren't telling you not to fucking say Merry Christmas. What people are saying is, don't be a xenophobic douchebag and have some respect for other people's beliefs because we all have such little time on this fucking planet. Shouldn't it just be, I don't know, getting along and everyone equally feeling good about whatever they want to feel good good about. I liked my whole, you know, physical war on Christmas joke, though. I thought that was, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on a show for you people. War on Christmas. I'm alone. I'm so bitterly alone on Christmas because Alexander Nash is not here. Alexander Nash couldn't make the Death by DVD holiday special. For good reason, though, our beloved Alexander Nash has COVID-19. He's getting better every day. Uh, you know, your prayers, vibes, whatever the hell, direct it to him. And remember, if you ever interact with Death Bite DVD on Twitter, that is the man behind the mask. That's I Alexander Nash. He runs the Twitter. I may or may not be the asshole behind everything else. So it's a blue Christmas. We wish Alexander the best speedy recovery. He will be back in the new year. So you're stuck with me. And I understand at this point if you tune out. But if you decide to stay and stick around, you'll finally figure out what the holiday special is going to be about. One of my favorite movies, not just holiday-wise, and this isn't one of those, you know, hey, Die Hard, that's a holiday movie, you know, because it takes place on Christmas. One of those edgy sort of things. And I get it. I think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. But it's become one of those... Uh, cliches where, ah, my favorite Christmas movie's Die Hard because I'm so fucking different, that there are so many different people with that same opinion that, yeah, it's a Christmas movie, it's fine, nobody's saying it's not, nobody's arguing with you. There isn't a massive debacle. You know, it's not like getting a stimulus check because the fucking world is closing down and you can't literally afford to live anymore. That's a debate. You know, that's, that's something that needs to be taken seriously, not, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? But the same thing can be said for tonight's subject matter. I'm spicy. I'm feeling, I'm feeling spicy tonight. I'm definitely lively. So we're flying by the night or the seat of our pants. What is the saying? Flying by the seat of your pants at night? This is a tragic mess. Merry Christmas. So, what was I Oh, yeah, favorite movies. Uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. There we go. Drum roll. One of my favorite movies. And I will say this is one of those things that there definitely is emotion from childhood. I had a beloved family member that was very fond of this movie and would play it, you know, in the middle of summer just because they enjoyed the film. I was very fond of them. And you, you have a lot of attachment to things from when you were a child and you really liked a movie and then you grow up and the movie sucks and you're not willing to really admit it or come to terms with the fact like, ah, oh, this movie's kind of absolute garbage. Uh, and just for example, like, the NeverEnding Story Part 2. I really like The NeverEnding Story 2, specifically because it was a part of my childhood. But as an adult, you go back and you watch it, and it's it's nowhere near the caliber and, uh, you know, the level of, of the original movie, which was very imaginative and I think asked a lot of deep questions that you, you as a kid, maybe didn't, you know, uh, have resonance with. But as you grow up and you go back through the story and you, and you look at The NeverEnding Story, there is a lot of really intriguing theories and, and messages inside of it. And the next movie is, is much more children-based. It's much more children to maybe preteen-based, and it's just a lot of flair and a lot of excitement. I think a lot of what made the first movie magical was kind of stripped from it. But I, I really, really like it to this day because I have those childhood memories. In this situation, I guess we should stop that drum roll. It's been going on for a while now. In this situation, the movie happens to be really, really, really good no matter what. And I don't, I don't really... I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that I could uh, point a finger at and Nelson Muntz laugh <laughs> because they don't like this movie. I don't. I can't name anybody uh, um, except Leonard Malton, who said the movie was icky mayhem. Sounds either like a White Stripes album or a British person. Hello, I'm Icky Mayhem. Uh, I promised several episodes ago I wouldn't do impersonations anymore, but they slip out. Sorry. Okay, start the drum roll back up. The Death by DVD Holiday Special proudly presents Hank, the world's greatest, rambling for 40 to 50 minutes about Joe Dante's Gremlins from 1984, written by Chris Columbus. Thank you, Mr. Announcer Man. I have a name, you know. Uh, 
Um... You don't know my name? I've been doing deep-voiced announcing that sounds similar to you on this program for almost a year now. Well, to be completely honest, I, I don't. I, I don't know your name. I have to introduce you as Hank the World's Greatest and all these bafflingly strange names every week and you don't know mine? Look, man, I just had to do a really shitty interview with Jay Willie on Jay Willie's Super Sounds of the 80s and I got the third degree and my ass kicked the entire time. I'm just trying to talk about gremlins. It's Brandon. My name is fucking Brandon. Christ, Brandon, all right. I assume you didn't even get me a Christmas card. Brandon, I'm th it'll be in the office tomorrow morning. Can we get back to gremlins instead of this long-winded filler that is moderately unnecessary but might get a chuckle or two, maybe a half of chuckles, ch a quarter chuckle, a chuck? Whatever. Gremlins. I love that Leonard Malton review, though. That's just the two words. What a review. Kind of a cocksucker. Yeah, that's the way to start the, the Christmas special off. That's that's how you do the Gremlin show. Call Leonard Malton a cocksucker. Where do you go from there? As a kid, I think Gremlins attacks your senses because, one, you really want a mogwai. I mean, that's the big thing. You really, really want a mogwai. And two, the adventurous spirit of the movie itself, I think, covers up some of the really brutal slayings and some of the, the very black and dark humor that is laid uniquely throughout the film. So you have this kind of wanderlust, and, and two, the way the movie was filmed, mostly on back lots and studios, it has this almost old world look. It's got like a Capra look to it, and you, you feel a sense... Of, of really wonderment when it comes down to being in the universe. You've got really unique characters. The father is an inventor, and he's a failed inventor. So it's like the idea of entropy, really, where you know things are going to fall apart. It's just when it falls apart. So everything he makes works for a day or two and then breaks. But they still live in a very lavish home. The whole entire town is just one of those it's-a-wonderful-life towns. You'll definitely recognize it if you've seen Back to the Future or, or God, anything from WB. Gremlins was filmed on a mix of the Universal backlot, the WB backlot, and Columbia Ranch, which I think is Warner Brothers' WB Ranch now. And we'll take a minute here to talk about the glory of backlots. Not the ones that you can venture to and purchase crack at, but the ones where you can film things at. Now, the WB backlot dates back to classic golden era Hollywood, and dozens of amazing things were filmed on it. But there's just something so incredibly unique. It's kind of like Spawn Ranch and all those... I, I can't name any other, I'm sorry. Old Western ranches and towns, like Dennis Hopper did that film, The Last Movie, where he you know, was living in an abandoned Western town, and they would go out and build these immaculate sets that looked just like a boomtown. And it would just exist to film, and that's what Spawn Ranch, where the Manson family lived at. That's, that was what its whole point was years beforehand. But the big major studios had towns built, storefronts built, and all of Gremlins was filmed exclusively on back lots or in built studio sections. Because a lot of the effort that had to be put into the movie, which we'll get into in a wee bit, caused for, you know, you can't just go into somebody's home and, and do some of the things that had to be done to control the Gremlins and the Mogwai. Again, we'll get there later. Maybe. But, namely, like, Back to the Future is the same town, is the WB backlot, which in Gremlins is called Kingston Falls. But there's just something so charming and so unique to how it captures uh, on film. And moving into the, the late 70s, early 1980s, backlots just weren't used anywhere near as much. So being able to, to capture that really does give it this, this, this 40s, 50s feel, this nostalgic feeling that just, no matter what... You can watch this movie in July, which is funny, it came out in the middle of summer, and it still will have the feeling of Christmas captured inside of it, that Hallmark Christmas card. And I think a lot of that is due to the unique mind of Joe Dante. Now, this movie was considerably cheap for what it took to get it done. It was $11 million, which t today is still pretty cheap for a movie. And Spielberg produced it. But Dante's eye and his ability as a director, I think, is really more so than anything what makes this such a terrific piece, and why after 30-some years it's aged as well as it has. Prior to this, Dante had done Piranha and The Howling, uh, uncredited as a director on Rock and Roll High School. In between it, he did the, the final segment for the Twilight Zone movie, I think the most anxiety-inducing segment in the entire movie. Uh, something that I dare say I think translated better than the original story. The segment, It's a Good Life, what a doomed, ill-fated movie, though, 
Rest in peace, Vic Morrow, and those two Vietnamese children that shouldn't have been on set. That's not even sarcasm. I mean, it's an incredibly tragic event. That What, what took place on the Twilight Zone movie was just bafflingly awful, and the children... More than anything, you know, you always hear about Vic Morrow, but but those two kids that were in his arms also got hacked to pieces. It's very tragic. Merry Christmas. You watch something like Gremlins and you look later on into Dante's career, something like Small Soldiers, you can see deeply how hysterical he is in his, you know, soul. The essence of Joe Dante, I think, is humor. And, you know, you watch The Howling, I think there's a lot of humor in that movie also, but what he is incredibly articulate at is presenting fear and showing you in a format that, that works for film. Something that is just as enticing as like reading H.P. Lovecraft or reading something that is horrifying to you, that makes your skin crawl, that makes you want to turn on the lights rather and lock the doors. Dante has that ability and, you know, uh, not had, always has. Even the Burbs, again, which is a comedy, but it's pretty... Scary it uh, to an extent. The Howling is fear. The, the Howling totally is fear. Gremlins is, uh, like the uh, to me, like the primordial horror comedy. Things like it had, had existed to an extent, but the amount of almost family-friendly nature, PG-ish humor, and then just violence mixed together and handled correctly turns into just a classic. It's an instant classic. And, I mean, when this movie came out... It was going up against Ghostbusters, which these two together, I think, really introduced America and the world to the fact that horror movies can also be funny. Ghostbusters is, is I think, a little bit more adult-themed with its humor, but certainly more successful in the, let's laugh at this, let's make this funny. And, you know, definitely Bill Murray. The role was written, Murray's role was supposed to be John Belushi, which I, I, I hate saying this because I'm a massive Belushi fan. I love him with my heart and my soul. He's, was a, he's always a hero to me. I don't think it would have been as funny. I don't think Belushi would have been the, the best at that period because he was going into kind of a straight man role. And he, what was that awful romance fucking movie where he's a, was, is he a writer? He's a writer and he goes out to Alaska or something. Again, what does this have to do with gremlins? Oh yeah, horror comedies. So, you know, uh, one, it came out in summer, and it's a Christmas movie, and two, it's coming out at the same time as Ghostbusters. So it, it has competition. I mean, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Moranis. I mean, you had a jam-packed cast with that movie. Even if it bombed, it probably would have outsold gremlins. But Joe Dante and gang were a surprise success. A uh, big part of this came down to marketing, because once Warner Brothers realized how adorable the Mogwai was, it, that was it. It was just, let's sell it, let's make everything. And it's kind of funny, there's so many inventions that the father character has that you, you thought maybe they could have spun those off, but two, none of them work in the movie, so consumeristically, how many people would want to buy a juicer that you saw in a film wouldn't work? But there is something to releasing a Christmas movie in the middle of summer. Because if a movie comes out in December and it's Christmas-themed, New Year's rolls along, you've got... Valentine's Day coming up, and Christmas is over, you're putting away everything, so it's going to hit for about two weeks. It's really going to boom, and that's going to be about it. You release a Christmas movie in the middle of summer, people are going to be excited to watch something to get excited for Christmas, and then, once Christmas rolls around, hey, let's watch that Christmas movie again, that was really good. That's how you make a classic. Now, of course, old Steve Z. Spielberg did have a lot to do with that. This is one of the first things that came out from Amblin, after he had done E.T., so he had a name, obviously, you know, it's Steven fucking Spielberg, it's the guy that did Jaws. He had a name, he had a lot of pull, he had a lot of power. And a lot of the things that were filmed and used for Gremlins was considered by the MPAA to be offensive and raunchy, and that it was not suitable for audiences, so they wanted to give it a much harder rating than it deserved. You can find this on the Wikipedia article, as I tell you very well-known things about Gremlins, but Spielberg went to the MPAA, and because of this... And the release of, it was a Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones, it was one of the Indiana Joneses. The PG-13 rating was born. So there is some celebration, I guess. Uh, I mean, modernly, everything that stood in 1983, 1984, when, when this was created, is completely different now. So it's arguable if that rating even uh, matters at this point. But what mattered at the time is the eternal battle against censorship and being able to produce the vision that you have and not have it stripped away from you. Now, in the 80s in the United States and the film industry, it was just, you gotta cut this, but the, the whole fight and the reason why censorship is such an important battle is, just 200 years ago, people were burned at the stake 
because they wrote things or, or said things that were considered to be evil and vile and could corrupt people. So censorship really can cause a lot of harm. And you might be offended by something, but that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be banned. There are so many people that are, are just shocked by wet-ass pussy. I'm not fond of it, but it's just because it ain't my jam. I'm not really into modern rap. It's just not my thing. If Lil' Kim had done it years ago, it might be a different story because I, I that's a different style, you know? But people are... <laughs> I don't need to defend why I don't specifically like it, because that's not the fucking point of all this. But people are, are, are bafflingly shocked. I can't believe. Why? That's, that's so foul. That's, that's something that should be private. Well, wet-ass pussies for all. Uh, get over it or shut up. What, what are you going to get? What are you going to solve by ranting about it? And it's the same thing. Like, right now, people hate Billie Eilish. And years and years and years ago, it was Justin Bieber. And I always thought it was so weird that you would get these grown-ass metalheads covered in tattoos bitching on the internet, Fucking Justin Bieber! Guy's a queer! I can't stand this! Like, what are you doing listening to him then? Put your Slayer record back on, Hesher! Shut the fuck up! It's just the whole point that people will always find something to complain about. Like the war on Christmas. Oh my god, we're segueing back to something! It's like I planned this. It's like I actually had something in my head. People will find any excuse to claim things, just masculinity, that's my thing, I can't, uh, just look at this 17-year-old with a swoopy haircut, fuck that guy. Alright, you're making fun of a child, and the child has sold millions of records, has Grammys, made more money in a YouTube video than you ever will, is that the problem? It's not your masculinity that's being threatened here, you're just egotistical and egocentric, and for the most part, these are the people that Christmas was being taken away from me. The whole, remember the Starbucks red cup thing from a few years ago or whatever the fuck was the, I don't know, the cup thing. Remember that? Any excuse to just have an identity when you actually lack one, perhaps, is what the problem is here. What does this have to do with gremlins? I don't know, but it was an interesting segue that came from censorship. Merry Christmas. I think in its nature, gremlins is certainly lighthearted. But there are deeper messages inside of it, one that's echoed at the very end of the film. You've done what your society does to everything. You exploit it, and you ruin it, and you make it awful. And certainly Western society is not ready for anything like the Mogwai. To be honest, Western society can't even take care of its own people. Constantly, we're locked in this battle of, do people deserve health care? Well, they should have to work for it. And I understand on one column, why it is so important to do that. But on the other, I'm baffled by why people can't understand the constraints of capitalism and the fact that you are being killed by this fascist machine that wants you to serve it. Now, yes, you work hard and you can get nice things, and I get the concept and the understanding of that, but you give your time with a gun to your head, pretty much, to whatever corporation that you've worked for your entire life that doesn't care for you Almost like a dog begging to get treats. Like, did I do a really good job? Can I get my cancer removed now? I did a really good job, so please, can I get my cancer removed? You should just be able to go to the fucking doctor and get help, you know? But that has little to do with gremlins. L little to nothing to do with gremlins, in fact. Western society. Oh, boy. You know, it's funny... But I really think that is the, the overall subject of Death by DVD. It's not exploitation movies. It's not horror. It's not weird, psychotronic cinema. It is late-stage capitalism and how it's destroyed the world. <laughs> After going on almost 12 years now, that, that's where we're at. That's what happens. It's the fucking Christmas special. We're talking about gremlins. And somehow I've gotten into a 10-minute rant about capitalism once again, and Alexander Nash isn't even here. He's usually the one that starts that up. He's usually the one that gets my fire started, and then we're losing 30 minutes because I've just fucking ranted and rambled. I'm sure we ostracize any new audience that comes in just thinking, hey, this is going to be a Christmas show about gremlins. Isn't that fun? No. None of it was fun. Not, not one minute of it was fun. I don't know. That's a lot. I'm having a little bit of fun. Just, just an inkling. Just a tiny little bit of fun. It's Christmas. And I hope out there, seriously, everybody that's listening to this show, if you're listening to this on December 25th, 2020, thank you. That's amazing that you brought Death by DVD into your home and um, let me ruin it for you. <laughs> Just let me piss right all over your Christmas. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Gremlins. We're talking about gremlins. Well, we were supposed to be talking about gremlins, but uh, sorry. 
Merry Christmas. I guess let's just get into it, you know, let's just let's just go through Gremlins. There is so much information pertaining the making of this movie and it's it's widely available. There are multiple DVDs and Blu-rays and you can Google it and find just days and days and days worth of information. And, you know, of course I can recant a lot of that and say it funny and yell, but it doesn't, you know, you hear something, you know it. So we'll try and, and be a little fresh here and just as we move along attempt to tell a little bit of backstory from a different angle. We'll begin with the inception of Gremlins, that fellow named Chris Columbus. Personally, I feel the reason this movie ended up getting purchased by Amblin Entertainment and Steve Z. Spielberg is because of the writer's name, Chris Columbus. Just because you don't know if that's real or not, but it's such an interesting title to, to give yourself. And it's actually the writer's real name. He was living in an apartment in New York City. It was mouse infested. And every night as he would fall asleep, he would have this kind of terrifying fear as a mouse brushed his hand or ran past him that they would just, you know, eat him alive. And that grew into a very gruesome idea. The original script for Gremlins was just packed with violence. The mother character is beheaded. The Gremlins eat the dog. There's a part where they go to a McDonald's and they eat all of the people inside but don't eat any of the food. A little bit of a poke toward consumerism. Something also with Gremlins is the fact that almost every single scene has a reference to other films in general, films Spielberg has made, and then Dante's previous films. And it's, it's everywhere. Gremlins has a watchability like no other, because every time you sit and see it, for one, once the, the whole army of Gremlins is born after the pool scene, every time you look in the background, it's something that you don't remember happening before. It's very, very active. And the fact that there is just so much going on, one of my favorite sequences is when the time machine appears and then it disappears and everyone's looking around for it. Spielberg also is in that scene and there's a little joke about Joe Dante, uh, extra that's dressed in his similar fashion. Because he's one of those unique guys that used to have a uniform. Because that was a thing, you know, directors had a uniform of, of what they would wear. They had a trademark, like Fulci had his red hat pipe and his, his red flannel jacket. Joe Dante always wore a woven tie a white shirt and aviator sunglasses, and that was his thing. You know, that was that was what I'm I'm gonna wear, how I'm gonna do things. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Romero had this scarf that you can see him pictured with pretty heavily. That was his his lucky scarf. I'm no director, but when I'm on sets, I have a, a green sweater. It's my lucky green sweater that I like to take. Kind of cool. If you look closely, you can find just so many unique things in the background that just gives it just a constant. Like you can watch Gremlins and then watch it again right after and still see something different if you're paying attention. But Spielberg loved it. It really captured a lot. Of of ideas that he had had. There were a lot of things that weren't used for E.T. that, you know, some of the ideas ended up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and some of the other things became poltergeist. But those ideas started a fire in Spielberg's head, and he contacted Chris Columbus. Funnily enough, Columbus thought it was a prank call. His writing partner and roommate at the time had answered the phone, and guy says, hey, I'm Steven Spielberg. I'm trying to get a hold of Chris Columbus. So he goes and tells him, and he just, you know, thought it was a joke. The script had been sent out. Columbus was an NYU film student, and it, you know, 30, 40 companies had received it, but it was just being passed around almost as a writing treatment, like a spec sort of thing. People were checking it out, but it didn't look like Gremlins was going to get made, and Spielberg felt right off the bat, like, this is a cavalcade of everything. This is horror. It's a Christmas movie. It has the sensibility that it could almost be a classic 40s, like I said earlier, uh, Frank Capra-style movie, to which, even successfully, as as the film progresses, we'll get into the cast in a little while. But you even have, like, the Lionel Barrymore bastard character with the Ruby Deagle, played by a Polly Holiday character. So, it, 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 reading it, especially somebody like Spielberg, a, a massive film fan himself as as a producer and a director as well it just lit a fire and it was like we got to do this so you know he gets blah 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 talks to chris columbus that it's on you know he purchased the script amblin got it and it goes into production and that's where dante enters spielberg had seen dante's work he had really liked what he had done he, he understood right off the bat that this guy can handle fear but he can also produce it pretty hysterically so a lot of adjustments were made, and what you get with the final product and the script and what we know as Gremlins now has this family-friendly appearance, like uh, it's a mask, really. And once you get into the movie, the mask comes off and you realize, this is horrifying. This, this whole concept is horrifying. You've got the whole mice idea of Chris Columbus's rat-mouse-infested apartment in New York City. But two, you've got a Warner Brothers... Bugs Bunny cartoon directed by Robert Clampett's called Falling Hair, which took 
a British World War II reference that, you know, if something went wrong with your airplane, the gremlins were inside of it, these gremlins were doing it, and it, with humor and style, made a whole joke about the thing and kind of gave a birth to the idea of these little monsters that could get inside of things and were absolutely terrifying. Road Dahl also wrote a book almost about the exact same thing, and you've, that's, that's literally where the terminology and the title comes from with this. And then Chris Columbus frequented Chinatown, as he says, it was very cheap, and he was able to, after school, get a lot of good meals and go to these curio shops and, and, and see, you know, which is the movie is when, when you're introduced to the very first scene, you, you have somebody doing the exact same thing, wandering Chinatown looking for anything. We'll get there in a second. And the concept really kind of came into fruition from there. Columbus, too, put a bit of himself into the Billy Peltzer character. He had originally wanted to be a cartoon artist, a comic book artist, and he sat and, and came up with a lot of rough ideas to what eventually would become the Mogwai and the Gremlin. But while in these curio shops and in Chinatown, he purchased a Chinese to English, or I think it was a Chinese-American dictionary, and found the word devil was Mogwai, birthing the awesome noise rock band's name and the Mogwais we know and love so much. Mostly what was taken from Columbus's sketches, I think, were the, the big ears and sort of the menacing facial features and the scaly nature of what the Gremlin becomes later on. Because a whole lot of work was put into what eventually would become the Gremlins and the Mogways. A guy named Chris Wayless, animatronic and puppet specialist, was brought in, and he is the genius behind what we know to be one of the most adorable things on the entire planet, and then these awful, horrifying Gremlins, who... I'm going to defend here in a little bit. I think there's a problem with this country. People look at the gremlins, and they see something evil, but they're just misunderstood. You know what we got to do in the United States? We got to MAGA. Make America gremlins again. And we'll get to that. I got a whole thing, man. You just wait for it. Each gremlin was between thirty to $40,000, and so many were made. Some of them were uh, two feet, and those were for close-ups. They were just massive heads with skeletal frames. There are so many unique stories to what it took uh, to make gremlins. But I said this way earlier. Unfortunately, it's just been covered. It's been discussed left and right. There is a great amount of literature. There is a great amount of featurettes, documentaries, things that you can even find on YouTube. And I think most people at this point know about it. So we try to, we'll stay bare bones here. But essentially, they built hundreds of different animatronic robots and puppets. And most of the sets, like, uh, for example, the house that the Peltzers live in, there was a massive pit under the floor, like in the living room. And it was just people filled with screens and headphones on, watching every direction of what's happening, and five to six guys, sometimes. Some of the gremlins would be five to six guys, some would be ten to twenty, doing all the maneuvers and, and getting the motions that we know. The specific scene I'm talking about is when you really get to see up close Gizmo for the very first time, and the audience is just, it's a great jump. You get him jumping out, and you don't really know what is coming at you, and it turns out to be this completely adorable thing. And then you've got the best performance in the entire movie, Mushroom the Dog, who plays Barney the Dog. You might know Mushroom from Pumpkinhead. Same dog from Pumpkinhead. This dog, best actor, Mushroom, next to Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman and Mushroom are probably the, the best two things performance-wise about this movie. The dog was so enchanted uh, by the Mogwai, by the, by the puppet. It thought it was real, and its interaction, it, it's just the way it, it, it relates to the, the puppets is amazing. Especially this scene where he growls and he gets upset. But the head, when you have the close-up of Gizmo coming out of the box, that thing was like two feet wide, three with ears. So, so goddamn much effort and, and just nonstop work was put into this. And the amount of manpower, it's baffling when you see that it's only $11 million taken to, to make this film. Which nonstop, it was just Dante and company, you know, we need more money, we need more money. And Steve Z and Amblin going, we know. <laughs> In text, we know, and that's it. So they may do, and we've talked about this with guys like George Romero, sometimes the lesser budget makes the product so much better. Day of the Dead was going to be this extravagant, massive, layered piece, and they were going to live in this forest complex, and it, it gets spiraling huge cities and millions and millions of zombies, and they just couldn't afford that. It's just not what happened. And, and using bare bones and, like, we're going to try and do with this episode and cutting things down, you ended up with a, a timeless product. Again, another classic. And I personally 
I feel Day of the Dead's the best out of the trilogy. I mean, Night of the Living Dead is is the classic and what is pivotal and what started everything. Most people go for Dawn. I think artistically and story-wise, Day of the Dead has a, a, a much more ferocious punch inside of it. And two, I'm a very big fan of Laurie Cardilli and John Amplis. They're both amazing. Everybody in that movie, Terry Alexander, Joe Pilato, may he rest in peace. Greg Nicotero, it's all great. It's all great. Everything's great. Go watch Day of the Dead if you haven't watched that anytime recently. And if you have, watch it again. Not so much a comedy, that one. Doesn't doesn't have a lot of the funny essence. But that was a big point with the original script of Gremlins, too, is it, it was funny. It was very bleak and very dark, but it was funny in its nature, and that was imperative in the translation onto film, is that it needed to keep that. It needed to establish at the very beginning that you're allowed to laugh. So let's get to the beginning of the movie. You've got a great cast. At the very beginning, you've got a wonderful voiceover by Hoyt Axton. And when you have Hoyt Axton, why wouldn't you want to do a voiceover? It was a second thought initially. There was a whole spiraling scene of him wandering around Chinatown, and this little boy finds him, takes him to his grandfather's shop. But what we end up getting, I think, is a little bit... I don't know, it, it reminds me of, of, of Blade Runner a little. You've got this very beautifully amber-lit sequence of Hoyt Axton walking through Chinatown and everything is very slow and you you have a, a, a mystical feeling at the very beginning of this movie that you know he's getting a Christmas present, but at the same time everything has just this almost end-of-the-world look to it. And I think that's intentional with what ends up happening throughout the movie. We've got Hoyt Axton, American singer-songwriter. His mother wrote Heartbreak Hotel for Elvis, and he himself, uh, he wrote the one of the greatest anti-drug songs, I think really the first major anti-drug song that was really capitalized and blew to fame because of Dennis Hopper's easy rider, The Pusher Man, that Steppenwolf recorded. He wrote Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, another excellent song. He wrote a couple songs for Three Dog Night. As a songwriter, he had a very great career as a musician on himself. He, he lived for music. He played all around the United States and shitty dirt bars to... Big Coliseums, he played country and western. God's chosen music. Very, very cool guy. He plays Randall Peltzer, the patriarch of this family, and he's looking for a Christmas present for his son, Billy. Good old Billy, who's played by Zach Galligan. We're introduced mildly to a little tiny puppet covered in shadows, and your curiosity is peaked right off the bat. Then the movie transfers into the, as I've referenced before, Capra-esque, Christmas mode. You are introduced to the Warner backlot and fake snow out the ass, but the vibe is there. It's very, very present, and you immediately almost feel heartwarming. Even if you've not ever experienced a good Christmas, you've got the concept. Uh, you've seen a very pretty Christmas card, and that is really what's captured with this. Then you're introduced to the family. Francis Lee McCain is Lynn Peltzer, the mother. As I mentioned before, Zach Galligan is Billy Peltzer. Right off the bat, you've got a Dick Miller alert! Dick Miller alert! Dick Miller alert! The greatest Dick Miller, a lucky charm for Joe Dante. I wonder, honestly, if Dante will make another feature film now that, unfortunately, Dick Miller has passed away. I got to meet him one time, and we stood in a room packed filled with people, and he just brutally made fun of them all. It was great. <laughs> Great! Just, just it was such a great, uh, just moment to to even have in your life. I got to hang out with Dick Miller, and he made fun of people, but not me. Polly Holiday is the dreaded Ruby Deagle. I mentioned her earlier. The wonderful Phoebe Cates, a man who actually hails from Anytown, USA himself, Judge Reinhold. Harry Carey Jr. makes an appearance. There's actually a lot of 50s B actors. The gas station attendant is the guy that starred in the original The Thing from Another World. Dante is a film fan, too. I think that's why he and Steven Spielberg ended up working together and kind of being puzzle pieces, because not only are they, are they filmmakers, but they also are film fans. And a lot of filmmakers aren't. A lot of people will, like David Lynch, he, he regularly states that, you know, he saw a lot of movies that inspired him, but he doesn't keep up with film. David Cronenberg, bringing up the Davids. He's the same way. You know, he'll talk about Akira Kurosawa, but that's, you know, you'll get something like that out of him. Make some strange, arcane Louis Bunel reference and, you know, <laughs> you ask him if he saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I, I don't think he'd have anything to say, which I don't either. But the movie kind of trucks at a very steady pace. After this point, you're introduced to Gizmo, who is voiced by Howie Mandel. Hire me for Gremlins 3. I could totally voice one of the Gremlins. Let's do it. The Gremlins are for me. The Mogwais are for me. You should be too. The Mogwai Gizmo is so adorable, you don't really question the ridiculous nature of the rules that apply to having him as a pet, which include 
which is crazy because I have to live under these exact same guidelines. You can't get them wet under no circumstances. No water. Don't give him anything to drink. Can't get him wet. Don't feed him after midnight. That's the most important thing. You'd think sunlight would be the most important thing because that kills him. But I don't know. You don't feed him after midnight. Some wild shit happens. What am I talking about? I, I know what happens in the movie and I'm questioning the rules. But you need to question the rules because time zones exist. I mean, if it's midnight in Australia, it's midnight like the next day. So when can you feed them? And if they don't drink, why do they need food? So many questions. <laughs> in a new batch, Gremlins 2, many of these are answered. A lot of fun is poked at that. The sequel itself makes fun of sequels, but pokes a lot of fun at the original Gremlins. Dante himself prefers Gremlins to a new batch, but we're not talking about that tonight. Once the rules are established, you're introduced to Corey Feldman's character. And Corey, really, this is his, like, one of his first forays into, into a major production. And he steals every scene he's in. When he's introduced as Billy's getting squirted in the face by the juicer, he's dragging this Christmas tree in that's twice his size. And he's just filled with, with talent. Even to this day, I'll, I'll fight. I'll bat for Corey Feldman. I think he's a really, really talented guy. Little weird. Whole Corey's Angels thing is a little odd to me. But you look at films like this, you gotta have a heart for Corey Feldman. He just goes the whole fucking nine yards. And it's, it's, it, you can see a difference. Like, to me, when you're watching Zach Galligan, he, he seems enchanted and interested by the Mogwai. But Feldman just looks like he believes it's real. I mean, you can really see, like the dog, some believability behind it. Hence why I say Corey Feldman and Mushroom the Dog are the best actors in Gremlins. But right off the bat, water is spilled on the Mogwai, and it reproduces. That's why you can't get it wet. And you've got a big difference with what's birthed from this whole water scene. The five... Mogwais that appear, one, the epitomous, Stripe. All of them look different, they're not nearly as cute, they all have an attitude. Which makes me kind of wonder, about Mogwais in general, are they all just bastards? Is that why it's, it's, and you've got the whole scene at the end of the movie with the grandfather that ran the curio shop saying, your culture ruins everything and you're not ready for, for the Mogwai yet. I kind of feel that in general as a species, the Mogwai are just dicks, that they're brutal and all they want to do is get wet, reproduce, and eat after midnight so they can take over the world. And in their nature, they're kind of evil. But Gizmo is one of the few sweet ones, because in the sequel, too, whenever more appear, they're just shitty. They're little devils, hence their name in Cantonese being Mogwai. Gizmo is really set apart from all of these little fellas, and all of them are awful to him. One of my favorite scenes is Gizmo sitting by the Christmas tree playing a little tiny trumpet with Mushroom the dog, and Stripe spits this awful Linda Blair pea soup looking stuff at him, and they're just grimy little jerks. They, they really are. Oh wait, wasn't I supposed to be doing a whole Make America Gremlins thing where I was talking about how great they are? Well, hey, look, it's not so much talking about how great they are. The problem is I kind of identify with them. All I ever want to do is eat chicken after midnight and set things on fire. It sounds amazing, and it's hard. But we've established on this show previously I'm a bit of a bastard. But it just, that's my way of having fun. And in that essence, I do truly relate to the gremlins. Because gremlins just want to have fun, right? And this introduces us to Roy Hansen, the biology teacher at Billy's High School, who takes one of the Mogwais and is trying to do some blood tests and figure out what's going on. The big boom hits right here as the Mogwais chew through Billy's alarm clock, convince him for food, and at the same time the one at the school manages to get himself a little bit of a ham sandwich, and we see why it's so goddamn important not to feed these little fuckers after midnight. Because they metamorphosize! Borrowing themes from things like invasions of the body snatchers and of course Ridley Scott's alien, they turn into these creepy awful goose sack eggs and eventually the gremlins break free. And immediately, it's havoc. <laughs> so we go from zero to 500 pretty fast. It's a, a wholesome, happy Christmas movie. And the sets are, are just immaculate. It truly just feels like a small Anytown USA Christmas. And when the gremlins are birthed, they, they come to kick some ass. They're all out of bubblegum. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. 
and immediately the biology teacher gets killed and they go after Billy's mother. As I'd mentioned in the original idea here, this is where things got drastically graphic and very, very horrifying. I still think there's a lot of devastating tone to it, though, when you've got Billy's mom facing off against the gremlins. One gets shoved in a microwave, one gets all screwed up in a blender, she stabs one, and that's one of my favorite things to notice in the background, as you look as she approaches the microwave gremlin, you can see the one she stabbed just kind of writhing, <laughs> just, just on the counter, it's got a knife in it still, and a lot of these things are what really offended the MPAA, despite the fact that most of the blood was green, and obviously they weren't people. You know, they, they, they weren't per committing violence against people. It still just seemed to be uh, unacceptable, and it's just baffling. It's really kind of silly in itself. Censorship. We already did that rant, though. We'll avoid it. And after this bodacious ballet of body horror, Stripe gets away. And then you move into this almost Noor-style vibe where Billy permitting, run with me with this. He's kind of like the detective character, and he's searching out and figuring out what's going on. You've got Phoebe Cates as the femme fatale helping him, and their sidekick is the Mogwai, Gizmo. They're hunting down and trying to figure out where the gremlins are as the entire town is just completely destroyed by them. Stripe manages to multiply, and there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Something you've got to imagine that when Chris Wallace was reading the script probably gave him a heart attack. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. There's only one stop-motion sequence, and that really is where you get to see the massive amount of gremlins that are coming into town and ready to completely wreak havoc. And it's successful, it's a bit dated, but at the same time, the claymation and the manipulation of the little figures works again for that kitschy nature of the movie, and you kind of just almost feel nostalgia when you watch it now, especially remembering that era and remembering how, like, remember the California Raisins? That was just amazing. Claymation itself. It doesn't really matter how old it is. It still just looks great. Like Ray Harryhausen's work. Something, too, that's unique about Gremlins is the fact that most puppet movies kind of are, like, waist up, and it's really hard to do legs. It's, it's, it's an awful challenge. I mean, it's a puppet, so somebody has to be doing it and being able to manipulate and move legs. When you get to that theater sequence where all the gremlins are just packed into the theater, you see them walking around and getting knocked over. That's some of the just genius art that was put into this. Sequences like that took days just to set up, just to get done, and all the amount of people that literally were under the stage working it's just, it's massive, and you watch the credits for this movie, you'll see how massive the production was and how many people were involved in just getting these little monsters to move around. So Stripe has multiplied, and people are dying left and right. Dick Miller, whose wife is played by Jackie Joseph, an old Roger Corman gal, she played Audrey Folkward in Little Shop of Horrors all the way back in 1960, so she certainly has a history with Dick Miller. They're in their house, and I, I didn't bring this up at the beginning, but it's, it is a, a, a great piece of the movie itself, and fits into my rants. Dick Miller's character, Murray Futterman, he's this, like, xenophobic, racist, old-timey American dude. Goddamn foreigners! Foreigners put gremlins in everything! If it wasn't a foreign car, it would work! And most of his dialogue is, it's fun, because it's coming from Dick Miller, and you've grown to love him, but it's really shitty, it's really offensive, it's probably... The most blue uh, dialogue out of the entire movie. He's not specific about which foreigners. It's just this coverall statement of goddamn foreigners. I think that's actually his first line of dialogue while standing with Billy as his VW doesn't start. Gremlins. You got you got to watch out for the foreigners because they plant gremlins in their machinery. That's the same gremlins brought down our planes in the big one. Big. That's right. World War II. Good old WWII. You know, they're still shipping them over here. They put them in the cars, they put them in the TV, they put them in the stereos and the radios. You stick in your ears, they put them in your watches. They got little teeny gremlins for our watches. I don't think it's such a good idea that you drive. Why don't you walk home? You know, Katie, I think maybe I'll walk home. Good. That's a nice night. God, Dick Miller was absolutely wonderful. They get killed by their own tractor. The gremlins are pretty intelligent. They figured out how to start and run over his entire house. They are absolutely up to no good. And they are like the embodiment of the id. Every bad little thing you want to do, stay up all night drinking, smoke, wear sunglasses after dark, set fire to the entire city, kill people, eat them, all of that. All of those things that you'd deep down inside, really want to do, but don't do. 
I might be revealing a bit of myself here. Maybe I should uh, just get back to Gremlins. But mischievous certainly is not a great way to explain them. They are the devil. Awful, awful little creatures. But they like Disney. And every single one of them decides that it's time to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This is a great opportunity for Phoebe Cates and Zach Galligan. Now, before this sequence, we learned something about Phoebe Cates, and I think it may be the best thing about the entire movie, and it's certainly since childhood to now is one of the things I've always taken from Gremlins. But her character, Kate Berenger, hates Christmas. Throughout the entire movie, she mentions and talks about why she hates Christmas, which befuddles Zach Galligan's Billy Peltzer. We learn she hates Christmas because her father attempted to come down the chimney on Christmas Eve with an armful of presents, and he fell and broke his neck. Days and days and days go by. He's rotting and dead in the chimney. Eventually, the police pull him out. Really awful thing. And that's where Kate learned there is no Santa Claus, and her father was dead. Bum 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 Merry Christmas! It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were, were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. So the police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire, and that's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came and broke through the chimney top, and me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird, and instead they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve. His arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck. Died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. This is one of the things that the MPAA was like, nope, can't have that. The fuck is wrong with you people? That's not acceptable. And Steve Z fought for it. He stood up, and it, it really is one of the best parts of the movie because it's so incredibly grim, and you're, you're listening to the story, and Phoebe Cates, she's a prize winner. We gotta put her up there with Mushroom the Dog and Corey Feldman. She just knocks it out of the park. It's so believable. And, and just the little bit of contempt in her voice is really what kicks it over, that she still is just kind of embittered by it. Which, I mean, definitely, she has the right to be embittered by it. But it's that whole performance and that whole sequence that just... That sets the tone for the, the end of the movie. That kind of kicks things into overdrive with, not only has Christmas been ruined by the gremlins, but wow, Kate just is, does not have a good time at all. Poor fucking girl. They keep mentioning her mother. You know, she's still alive, and I always thought it was funny at the end of the movie that she's with Billy and his family, and they're taking care of Gizmo. And, like, the gremlins have ravaged the entire town and killed multiple people, and she never once calls her mom. Or And I understand, you know, it just wasn't a written character, but an afterthought, it's kind of funny. Like, fuck it. Hanging out with Billy and the family. Last time I had Christmas at my house, Dad died. But um bum I bet she hates listening to Here Comes Santa Claus. Narrowly escaping a gremlin attack, Kate and Billy blow the theater, presumably killing all the gremlins. Except for Stripe, who desperately needed candy. And the theater lobby was empty, so he ventured across the street. He's spotted, and the final piece of the film, probably the most exciting piece of the film, happens. It's almost like a Schwarzenegger cop drama. You, you got Billy, who you think is the hero, hunting for the gremlin in this department store. And the gremlins are crafty. They set up traps, they've got toys. If you notice carefully, one of them is an E.T. doll that are moving around and distracting Billy. And then the final battle happens. This gremlin is just ready for blood. He starts throwing saw blades at Billy. He gets a chainsaw, and there is a 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre homage. Again, I pointed out at the beginning of the movie, throughout the entirety of this, all of Gremlins, there are dozens of homages to film in general. Joe Dante's previous work and Spielberg's work. One of my favorites being, if you look at the fridge and the Peltzer house, there's a little happy face sticker. You might remember that from The Howling. And then things like the E.T. doll showing up. I mean, shit, the Mogwai gizmo was literally based on the color patterns of Steezy's Cocker Spaniel, just to appeal to his interests. There's a lot of in-depth detail. Sit down and watch Gremlin sometime soon, I'm telling you. There's so much fun in the background. Watch it twice. Gizmo ends up saving the day in a RC car and extinguishes the life force of the Gremlin he created. Wow, it sounds kind of deep when you say it that way. But it goes from this, like, I said Schwarzenegger, but really like a scene from Stallone's Cobra to a, a very slap-happy, tiny little furry thing in an RC car saving the day, and it does make a bit of a buffoon out of Zach Galligan's Billy Peltzer. Originally, he had some heroic sequences where Stripe is shooting at him, and he jumps across the room and pulls open the blinds, and it causes him to melt. I think it's a little bit more effective when you have Gizmo saving the day, because you do kind of forget about him. He is quintessential to the movie, but that last half, it's really focusing on Phoebe Cates and Zach Galligan. So bringing him back kind of reminds you, like, oh my god, isn't that thing adorable? And again, ka-ching, you hear the cash register opening, and you know people are going to buy whatever product that they've put out because of him being the hero. Gizmo was initially going to turn into a gremlin as well. There wasn't going to be any cute, fuzzy happiness toward the end of the movie. All of them were going to become monsters, and that was going to be kind of the heartstring-pulling effect that you were introduced to this beautiful, happy, fluffy, fuzzy, cute, adorable little thing, and then it turns into a monster. But rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, it came and it kind of made sense that one of them needs to at least be a face. One of them at least needs to make it to the end. And a lot of the darkness that was removed from the story, it would have worked. It would have been a completely different story, but successfully managing to to keep some of it while fighting the MPAA, I think really allowed more humor to, to be on set, allowed a lot more fun to be on set, like the whole chainsaw baseball bat sequence, that was just Galligan talking to someone and saying, you know, God, it'd be really cool if we kind of had like a chainsaw baseball bat fight, to which they responded, you're right, that would be pretty cool. And it is, it worked. The movie ends with the final gremlin being dispatched in a very ooey-gooey reminiscent of later on in the 80s. Clive Barker's Hellraiser when Frank comes out of the floorboards. Or like that Australian flick, Body Melt. It's pussy and nasty, but it's what you want at the end of the movie. It's what you celebrate at the end of the movie. And of course, you've got the final jump scare with the gremlin popping back up and it's flesh melting off of its skull. The dog runs away. Everyone's completely frightened. Again, another great performance from Mushroom the dog when he comes in with Hoyt Axton looking for his son in the department store. And then everyone goes home. Our hero Gizmo is being taken care of and mended back to health. When who knocks at the door? It's Key Luke, the grandfather, a.k.a. Mr. Wing, the shop owner who sold Hoyt Axton. Gizmo at the beginning of the film. He's aware, obviously, as everyone would be, about all the trouble that these gremlins have had and is very stern and upset with the Peltzer family for just their lack of disregard. And he explains to them that they're not ready for it as their society obviously cannot handle any form of responsibility. But there is a nice little message at the end where he turns happily and lets Billy know, maybe one day you'll be ready. You hear Gizmo sing and it's nice where he says goodbye and and all seems right in the world. Now, unfortunately, Warner Brothers took way too long to do a sequel. You've got Gremlins 2, The New Batch, in 1990, as I said, a film Joe Dante prefers, but they went about it all wrong. I think they went to everybody but Joe Dante and Steve Z to get this job done and Chris Columbus. And then finally, you know, oh, hey, maybe we should ask those guys. Gremlins 2 is a different story. It's much more of a parody than anything else. The first movie, I kind of will argue with Joe Dante, just maybe because of the nostalgia that I brought up at the beginning of the film, how I remember watching this movie in the middle of summer with my aunt, and just the the fun of that, and, and her excitement. And then, you know, years later, this person is dead, and I'm an adult, and I look back, and I watch the film, and I feel the excitement now, and I am just enamored with it. I love the gremlins. Make America Gremlins again, MAGA baby! Make America Gremlins again! I love the Mogwai. I, I, I just, there's nothing really 
negative, I guess, that I, I can point out in this movie. Some of the stuff that was cut, I, I really would have liked to have seen. There was a lot more violence. There's this whole segment where the gremlins, they when they move, they move like little bouncing balls. And you've got the scene where Barney, played by Mushroom, the dog, is tied up in the Christmas lights outside, and they had shot some sequences of them bouncing around, kind of like the kind of like critters, and all that was cut. Uh, the violence I can live without. I mean, it's fine as it is. Uh, the darker tone would have been interesting, but I'm happy Billy's mom doesn't die. I'm happy Billy's dad doesn't die, and I'm really happy the dog doesn't get eaten. I think Gremlins is functional, and I it's a Christmas movie, quote 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 Christmas movie, but it's not really a Christmas movie. It's not like it's a Wonderful Life. It's Sort of like, I mean, you could consider The Exorcist 3 a Christmas movie because it takes place around that time period and they go see It's a Wonderful Life. It's a holiday film. Hey, there we go. That's the word. Holiday. But it has an insightful look at consumerism, Western culture, responsibility, and too, looking at Phoebe Cates' character, not everybody celebrates Christmas. And that's something that should be widely accepted. The birth of Christ may be very important to you, but some of us don't fucking care at all. Merry Christmas! Gremlins, 1984, directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, produced by old Steve Spielberg. It's a ride, it's a classic, and that brings us to the end of the Death by DVD holiday special, which also brings us to the end of the year, another year with Death by DVD. We are moving on Toward year 12. 12 years of this bullshit, can you believe it? Almost a thousand episodes. There have almost been a thousand episodes of Death by DVD, and I know not all of them are available anymore, but what we have tried to give you, especially in this last year, is an update on sound, an update on creativity. We are trying to deliver something new and interesting. If you heard my interview on Jay Willie's Super Sounds of the 80s, You'll have heard there's going to be some new things coming this year. We're going to bring back some old segments from the live era. Philosophy of the Dead will be returning. I'm going to start a whole regional film segment that will be somewhat similar to the Video Nasties. Alexander Nash will appear on that here and there. And as you've noticed, the haunted world of Hank has bloomed into its own thing. And I will be continuing my solo ventures throughout the year. So we're hoping after this new year to return even bigger and better than before and continue bringing you the worst in movie reviews. Death by DVD, when watching is never enough. We here at Death by DVD sit painfully through hours and hours of movies, so you, the public, can make an informed decision of what you put in your ear holes and eye holes. Some of these films are good, some bad, and some even unmentionable, but all have one thing in common. Watching all these movies will one day melt our brains into a sloppy wet mush. No need to thank us. We were already methodically destroying our lives with cinema. At least this way there is a permanent record of our demise. As the midnight hour approaches, the smoke sets heavy and the booze begins to flow like blood. Tune in and drop through hell with your hosts. Hank, the world's greatest, and I, Alexander Nash, as we take you on a journey through the worlds of horror, gore, cult, strange, slashers, psychotronic, trash, twisted, gornography, weird, driving, cheesy, lost, rare, and frightening films. Join us and listen as two lives collapse on themselves. I hope all of our audience had a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Killer Kwanzaa, a good time. I hope everything for everyone is copacetic and okay. I hope all of you have a pleasant night and a good tomorrow. And may this new year bring change, happiness, growth, everything you've ever wanted. Thank you so much for listening to Death by DVD. It means everything to me. I love you all. Happy New Year's. We'll be back next week. The ashtray is full. And the bottle is empty. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Death by DVD has reached the
end of another day of broadcast. Dead by DVD is broadcast from on top of the blue Bristol Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with offices at 123 Easy Street with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building in the Eiffel Tower. statement.